0: Today in The Journey with Steve DeWitt, a message from John 13.
1: The foot washing by Jesus' design is a picture of his work of salvation for us. And that is why when Peter said, you're not gonna wash my feet, Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. This is a picture of my salvation. And if I don't wash your feet, you're not saved.
0: Welcome to The Journey with Steve DeWitt, Senior Pastor at Bethel Church in Northwest Indiana. As Christians, it's important to remember our need for repentance and humility, and acknowledge our dependence on Christ for salvation. Only then can we experience a deep, intimate connection with Him. Today on The Journey, Pastor Steve DeWitt brings us to John 13 for a relevant lesson from the upper room. It's a message titled, Washing Disciples' Hearts. And you can listen online at The Journey Now, here's Pastor Steve with today's message.
1: The upper room. John 13 through John 17. These five chapters are long. If they were by themselves, they would be by themselves the 11th longest book in the New Testament. And uh, we think about this upper room to realize that within 12 hours of being in this upper room, Jesus would be hanging by nails on a cross. Within 18 hours, He's dead. A very significant place. If you knew that you were going to die within 18 hours, where would you go? What would you do? And who would you hang out with? And here we have who, where, and what the Son of God chose to do and to be with in the last hours of his life. So we are in John 13. John 13, verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. We'll pause right there. The first thing that, Je- that John tells us that Jesus did is that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And John now sets the table for the famous foot washing by noting what Jesus was thinking, what Judas was thinking, and what Satan was thinking. We start with Jesus. First, what does he know that his hour had come? So Jesus now, he's filled with with faith, but he's not only filled with faith, he is also filled with love. It says that he is going to love his disciples to the end, to, to completion. And so we have Jesus now, faith and love. Contrasted with him is Satan and Judas. So Satan has so influenced Judas that Judas has already gone to the religious leaders and offered to give Jesus over to them. So you've got Judas, you've got Satan, but then you have Jesus. And in his heart is faith and love. And that leads us now to Jesus washing the disciples' feet. This was a secret meal, and so uh there were not there was not a servant there which perhaps would have been there in a normal setting somebody there maybe even the host of the home who when the disciples arrived would have washed their feet okay there was nobody there to do it let's talk about feet washing because this is not part of our culture uh so much but It was the common practice of the day, and it was the common practice for a very good reason. You've got to imagine back in the first century, uh, everyone wore sandals. And on top of that, they would walk around on not like, you know, uh, paved roads so much. These are mostly just dirt paths that over the centuries, people accustomed to walking down, they were sort of packed down, but they're still dirt. And when it would rain or when, you know, something like that, your feet got dirty. Now, we, we tend to romanticize this a little bit, like, oh, it'd be so great to be back in the first century. Okay, go to Mackinac Island. Let me If you've ever been to Mackinac Island, and I love Mackinac Island, and I love Mackinac Island fudge. But if you go to Mackinac Island, it's an island where there are no gas engines, so you don't have cars and vans and things like that. Everything is horse-drawn or bike riding or, you know, something like that. So it's, it's cute. It's charming. If you've ever been there, it's like, oh, it's like going back in time. How great it would be to live back in this sort of charming era as you walk around and realize that there are certain things that were not so great about it. Because on Mackinac Island, yes, it's all horses, which means that everywhere you go, there is manure. And it stinks. And it smells. And you're constantly stepping in it no matter how hard you try when you go to Mackinac Island your shoes have poop on them if I pretty sure I've never said that word from the pulpit but it's it's just the reality of it so first century when you would walk through town or walk down the path or whatever your feet were nasty And so the practice was when you went to a house, they would before you came into the house, they would wash your feet because they didn't want the nasty in the house. You understand? Even today, if you come to the Dewitt House, we are a no-shoe house. Okay, we don't mean anything by that, but you know whatever nasty you brought in with you, we don't want it in our house. And so you take your shoes off, and and then you're welcome. We know from the Gospels that. The group dynamic, as the disciples were coming in, and maybe even as they were seated, was that they were arguing about which of them was the greatest, which of them was the most important, which of them Jesus loved the most. And so when they got to the upper room and there was not a servant, for one of them to say, here, let me wash your feet, would have indicated that in their mind, the other person was more important than them. And the disciples were arguing that each of them was the most important. And so what was the result of that? They get to the upper room. Nobody's washing anybody's feet. And they all sat down, technically laid down, as I'll get into here in a moment, with unwashed, dirty feet. Now, we're going to be in this for... A year or so and because of that I want to spend a little bit of detailed time to help us imagine what the actual upper room was like and so uh, first of all I want to say remove from your mind all sense of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper painting okay 13 white guys uh, European white guys sitting at an upright table that is not even close to what it was like and so today, I want to show you uh, what, the, what the, sa- the setup was like, okay, and how they did it. They did not eat meals the way that we eat meals. So I've got three tables here. There, there would have been a fourth one, probably. But uh, to give you a sense of it, the tables that they ate at were low to the ground. And the practice was not sitting and eating like we do, but rather they would lay down on their left elbow like this and they would eat with their right hand like this, okay? So imagine 13 dudes laying down, sort of, we call it chilling, okay? Chilling, eating the food, you know? It's a little different than da Vinci's painting, don't you think? He did not get that part right at all. And so... Because of that, and because of a couple of tips that we have, scholars have, have tried to recreate who sat where. So let's start with Jesus. Where did Jesus sit? Probably, whatever would have been identified as the head table, if you will, Jesus would have been there. He would have been at the center. Okay, so imagine him laying down right here. The Bible says that John, during the upper room, was so close to Jesus that he laid his head back and just put it on like Jesus' shoulder, which means that John was sitting right here. It's the only place he could have been, okay? Kind of interesting, isn't it? It says also that Peter signals to Jesus, or to John, asks Jesus who's the one that's gonna betray him, which means that Peter wasn't at this table, he would have been at one of these tables, okay? And finally, and perhaps most interesting, later on, Jesus is going to indicate who it is that betrays him. And it says that he takes the bread, the sop, and he hands it to Judas. And without getting up and walking around like I've done here myself, there's only one place that Jesus could have in proximity, handed that bread, and that's right here, okay? So think of the upper room. You have Jesus, John, Peter, and on the left of Jesus, Judas Iscariot. Creepy, isn't it, to think about? Him being there. All right, so that is the layout, and with that said, something extraordinary happens. Jesus rose from supper, so they've been eating. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel. So what that means is that in a, in a properly uh, equipped room, there would have been, a basin with water in it, and there would have been a towel. And what it means is that Jesus gets up from the meal, he goes over to the servants' preparations, and he took the towel, it says in the text, and he wrapped it around his waist. Can't want to be able to visualize this. Wrapped it around his waist, and he takes the, the water, and we don't know where he started. We know Peter wasn't first, But he comes, and remember, these guys are laying down. So their feet is like out here. And I was even visualizing this as I was preparing, that if the guys are on their side like this, for Jesus to wash their feet, they would have had to have turned like this. And their foot would have gone in the basin, okay? And then it would have been brought out. And the text says that Jesus did that with their feet And with the towel that he was himself wearing, dried off their feet. And slowly, he makes his way around all 12 disciples and washes each of their feet. Now, I don't know if that's how you visualize it, if you've been a Christian for a long time, but it was something like that. And to realize the only way that you wash the feet of men who are reclining is to be on your knees. In a sense, Jesus sort of prostrating himself before Andrew and before Bartholomew and even before Judas. Think of this. Jesus washed Judas's feet as well. Imagine George Washington washing Benedict Arnold's feet Imagine David washing Absalom's feet. Imagine Kennedy washing Oswald's feet. And that's kind of what it was like for Jesus to wash Judah's feet. Imagine what was going through Judah's mind as Jesus did that. And what was Jesus thinking as he did? Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? Now there are two lessons that the foot washing teaches us. The second one is that Serving and servanthood is greatness in the kingdom of God. And that's what we're going to talk about next Sunday. The first one has everything to do with this exchange between Peter and Jesus. Notice that Peter is appalled at the thought that the the master, that Jesus would ever wash his feet. And says to Jesus, there's no way you're going to do that. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And then you have Peter in typical Peter fashion. Well, then give me a bath. You know, that was just Peter. He was all in, all out, or all in. Gotta love people like that. But it shows that Peter is actually clueless as to what this actually means. And remember, John wants us to know what it means. And what it means here is that Jesus, through the foot washing, is dramatizing, he's parabolizing his own Salvation and redemption. It is a picture of Jesus' entire life and ministry. As Sinclair Ferguson points out, notice that Jesus laid aside his garments, and in salvation, Jesus laid aside his heavenly glory. That Jesus took up the basin and the towel. That Jesus was came as a servant. He came to serve us. That Jesus washed on his knees. That In our salvation, Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death, Philippians 2. That Jesus washed their feet. And in salvation, what does he do for us? He washes our sins away. And that then Jesus put his garments back on And in salvation, Jesus ascended back to his former glory at the right hand of God the Father. And what we see in this, friends, is that the foot washing by Jesus' design is a picture of his work of salvation for us. And that is why when Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. What he was saying there was, this is, is a picture of my salvation. And if I don't wash your feet, you're not saved. You are not cleansed. And by that, it doesn't mean that you have to have been at the foot washing in order to be cleansed, but it is a picture that Jesus intended for us to understand what was going on and why he was doing it. And so I have three final questions in, the, in our first message here, and the, here's the first one. Well, I'll tell you all three. Are you Peter? Are you Judas? Are you John? If I could transport you personally into the upper room, which of those three would represent where your faith is here today? Let's start with Peter. Are you Peter? What was going on inside of Peter? Pride. You'll never wash my feet. And he insinuates in that, actually he asks the question, Lord, will you wash my feet? And what he's kind of insinuating there is, no, I think I'll wash your feet. And the human heart always wants to save itself. We want to do the cleansing. We are the ones who do the saving. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to merit favor with God. I'm better than most people. I'm going to get into heaven because I've been a good person. And here you have Peter, the, the one who becomes the apostle Peter, one of the 12 disciples, refusing the Son of God. And if he had refused him, Jesus says, you're missing out on heaven. His pride kept him, could have, from experiencing eternal life and salvation. And that is so true, every gathering of people who are Christian or otherwise spiritually interested, there are always people whose pride will keep them from heaven. They will not humble themselves, they will not acknowledge that I need to be saved, I'm not the one who does the saving, Jesus is the one who does the saving, Humanity always tries that. The religions of the world always say that and teach that. But Christianity is by grace. It is a gift that we receive. Peter had to humble himself. And I wonder if today, if you might be Peter. You've never come to that point where you have truly humbled your heart before God. Quit trying to save yourself or be better than others, but to receive the grace that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder if you were at the upper room would you miss out on would you miss out on heaven like Peter almost did Are you Peter Secondly are you Judas Are you Judas Here you have Judas participating in this sacred ceremony We know that he also partakes in the Lord's supper You would think anybody who's in the room, where it happened, participates in these sacred ceremonies that in the Christian church for 2,000 years we, we, we reverence what happened in the upper room, you would think everybody's good in the upper room and you would be wrong. Because Judas, in spite of participating in the ceremonies, he was not, Jesus was not his on the inside. And I think that there are many people who even gather on Sundays in churches, or maybe watch online, who are a lot like Judas in this way. You go through all the motions. You participate in all the ceremonies. On the outside, you look like a regular Joe disciple like everybody else. But on the inside, you know it's fake. And like Judas, there will be many in eternity who are not in heaven, but who are in hell in punishment in spite of the fact that they were sort of a part of the group. They looked like they were the real thing, but inside they were not. And today, friend, I want you to realize that foot washing doesn't save you. You could have been right there in the upper room and it wouldn't save you. Participating in the Lord's Supper and communion doesn't save you. Coming to church on Sunday doesn't save you. Any number of sort of religious things that you might say, they don't save you. It is... It is when we humble ourselves before God and trust entirely in Jesus and allow him to do the saving and receive salvation by faith through grace in him. I just wonder in, in, in one second after you die, the embarrassment that maybe you would have had to say, you know what, I've been faking it all these years. How you will wish that you didn't fake it and that you became a genuine follower of Jesus. And I would urge you today to put your trust in him as your savior. Are you Peter? Are you Judas? Third, are you John? And he's the one I'm hoping we all are because John doesn't recoil like Peter and he's not a fake like Judas. He's the guy who wrote this. I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So friend, where are you at the table? And who are you at the table? Peter, Judas, I'm hoping for John, a genuine follower of Jesus, a recipient of that cleansing, and a rejoicer that there is eternal life in the high name of Jesus Christ. May he forever be praised. Amen. You're listening to
0: The Journey with Steve DeWitt and the conclusion of a message titled Washing Disciples' Hearts. We're just getting started in our series called The Upper Room. But if you're just tuning in, remember you can access every message in this series online at thejourney.fm. On our website, you'll also find Bible studies and other helpful resources designed to help you grow and thrive in your walk of faith. Well, I just want to take a moment to thank our listeners and our faithful monthly supporters who give generously to help keep the journey on the air. Because of friends like you, we're able to share God's word with listeners around the country through the radio and internet, helping people meet God wherever they're at in their own life's journey. And when you give a generous gift today, whether it's a one-time or monthly gift, you'll help ensure that the clear biblical teaching on the journey continues to reach listeners throughout all of 2024. So would you give today? Just call 844-7-JOURNEY. That's 844-756-8763. Or make a donation online at thejourney.fm. As a thank you for your generous gift, we'd like to send you a book titled Decision Making and the Will of God. In the expanded 25th anniversary edition of this highly acclaimed work, author Gary Friesen examines the prevalent view on God's will today and then provides a sound biblical alternative to the traditional teaching of how God guides us. This new edition includes a study guide for small groups, insightful answers to frequently asked questions, and a guide to painless scripture memorization. Request a copy to read along with our current series or give one to a friend. Call 844-7-JOURNEY. That's 844-756-8763 or visit the journey Well, I'm your host, Tim Svoboda. Come back tomorrow for a message titled, The King Who Washes Feet. That's Thursday on The Journey with Steve DeWitt. Today's program was produced and furnished by Bethel Church in Crown Point, Indiana.